Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is the morning of May the 20th, 2021, in California, at least. It's uh, lunchtime in New York, uh, late afternoon in the UK, uh, early evening in Europe, and very late evening in Asia. Somewhere, someone is being a capitalist. The markets continue to work globally around the clock. And capitalism seems to be, at least uh, at this point on May 20th, 2021, the central reality uh, of our existences. Uh, when you look at the front page of the Financial Times, lots of news about uh, shakeups at Morgan Stanley, one of the world's biggest banks, lots of news about Bitcoin, the new digital currency that's about the cryptocurrency that's about to shake up the very architecture, the plumbing of global currency, Wall Street Journal, the other American uh, voice of capitalism as headlines about jobless claims and work and a real estate frenzy in the midst of our COVID crisis. So everywhere capitalism seems to be shaping our reality. When you look at CNBC, uh, we have lots of indicators, green and red, about markets going up and down. Now, a lot of the themes in our show recently have been about capitalism, about its morality or lack of morality. We've had lots of shows about why capitalism is bad and some shows about how capitalism can be reinvented. Uh, earlier this week, I had the New York uh, banking expert and historian Zachary Carabell on the show. His new book, Inside Money, at least according to a Wall Street Journal review, uh, writes about Wall Street capitalists who put morality above money. For some, of course, that's not possible. For some, his uh, capitalism itself is profoundly flawed. It's something that can't be reformed from within. I suspect that that is the position of my guest today, uh, Tim Jackson's new book, post-growth, Life After Capitalism, is a book which gets us to imagine, indeed, life after capitalism, life post-growth, a world without capitalism. Um, I'm thrilled to have Tim Jackson. Uh, he's a, well, a world-renowned critic of growth, of capitalism, uh, a, a green thinker on many fronts. Uh, he's speaking to me from Farnham in Surrey in southern England. Uh, Tim, congratulations on the new book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism. Um, we have this wonderful image from the cover of your book of a, uh, a sofa on the beach. Is that what life after capitalism is like? Are we all going to be able to sit on the sofa and enjoy the tide and the beach? Um, let's hope so for those who like that kind of thing. Th thanks for thanks for inviting me, Andrew. It's it's great to be here. I think the image is is more about um, taking this time at this point to reflect on what capitalism is, where it's brought us, and what might come next. It's not necessarily 
Uh, we're not necessarily going to be littering beaches with uh, used sofas after capitalism, but it's but it's 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 an image that's that's supposed to at least kind of reflect uh, a point in time at which we should be thinking deeply about the the kind of system that we live in and what we want from the future. Yeah, it's a it's a lovely cover of the book. Uh, the book itself is lovely too. Post growth life after capitalism. Uh, but there's nothing, uh, there's nothing, uh, gentle about your writing. Um, you write about capitalism. It reminds me more of Marx than, than many other, uh, contemporary writers. And I'm quoting you here, uh, Tim, you say, capitalism is a catalog of system errors. It has overturned the principle of balance in human health, relentlessly insisting that more is better. It has denigrated care, continually depressing the value of the carer. It has overstimulated consumer appetites, ruthlessly arousing dissatisfaction. It has accelerated material throughput, dangerously undermining the integrity of the natural world. Were you, uh, were you trying to emulate Marx there, Tim? Uh, that certainly uh, brings to mind both capital and the communist manifesto. Not, not entirely. I mean, I, I think you know. I think there, there are there are things still to be learned from from Marx, but there, there's also lessons from history and what followed Marx's thought and some of the dangers that came out of that. What I what I think is that we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to face up to the dysfunctionalities in the system as it has been bequeathed to us. And that's not to suggest that anybody in particular is to blame or that anybody in particular is faultless. It is to suggest that we should take a long hard look at ourselves and at the system that has left us in a suboptimal position I think and you mentioned there in the quote care and it's quite an important part of the book and it's also I think an important part of our of our lessons through the pandemic that the people who cared for us through that pandemic had been very hard done by in the decades prior to that systematically in fact there their work had been devalued, their life livelihoods had been less and less secure. And capitalism just hasn't looked after those people. It hasn't looked after the people who we actually thought of as the least important in society until suddenly it turned out they were the, the thin line that separated us from absolute disaster. So that, that, that's the kind of task uh, that I feel is necessary at this point. Yeah, it seems as if the um, the COVID catastrophe has triggered uh, your, your your this book and, and your thinking on life after capitalism. You write about COVID, the poor suffered most, but no one was left entirely unscathed. Almost overnight, as the pandemic spread its dangerous wings, the world faced an unparall unparalleled slowing down of economic and social exchange. Its reality was shocking. Is this a little uh, prelude to life on the beach, uh, COVID? Does it, does it give, I mean, obviously it's a nightmare in some ways, particularly if you got sick or died, um, but does it also offer a degree of promise, imagining what a world could be like, which is quieter, less dominated by profit, less obsessed with the ups and downs of global stocks? Yes, I think it does. Um, there was there was a very interesting point in the pandemic um, in many countries just after after the first kind of lockdown. 
And it was a point at which people, you know, suddenly realized a life that they had never experienced, that their parents had never experienced, that was was almost alien to them in terms of understanding it. And and at that point, it was absolutely fascinating to find that there was quite a lot of those people who actually found something in that change that they wished would like to continue. So there, there was a survey, a couple of surveys done here during those early days of the pandemic, which kind of, you know, 80 plus percent, 90 percent in one case, sort of said there are things here that we would like to keep. And some of that was the slower pace. Some of it was the emptier streets. Some of it was more time with their families and friends. Some of it was discovering skills that they'd forgotten they had. And for sure, a lot of that paled as lockdown went on and on and on. And there was, as the World Health Organization has said, a kind of shadow pandemic um, of mental health problems and even domestic abuse that flowed from those uh, circumstances. But nonetheless, it was a place where we could begin to confront again what really matters to us. And, and that, that sort of central lesson that the health of ourselves and our families and our relationships with the ones we love are the key elements of wealth rather than the the, the notes in the bank accounts and the and the hopes and promises of consumerism that was something i think that did come home to people a little bit uh as you know um uh tim uh in california and the us the east coast we're slowly coming out of the pandemic and i know the same is true in parts of the uk as well uh, but you stress the fact that um, the plague never really ends. Uh, you you quote Camus uh, on the plague. I used to have a rule at the beginning of this show. We we went daily during COVID. I said no one's allowed to talk about the plague because everyone wanted to Camus' mm -hmm. plague. But you bring it up in an interesting way. Uh, you say that uh, you you quote Camus. You say um, uh, that the survivors knew now that if there is one thing. Uh, one can always yearn for and sometimes attain. It is human love. Um, that was the the message, or at least the message you drew from Camus' plague. Um, and you, um, uh, we had a number of shows actually about plague, including Liesel Schillinger. Uh, you 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 connect Camus with the um, the, the 20th century French writer, with the 20th century. German-American political theorist uh, Hannah Arendt. What's the connection between Camus and Arendt, and what can they both teach us about love post-plague? Because, of course, Arendt, in her own way, was also a writer on, on the plague. Yes, he was. She, I mean, in a sense, Postgrace is a collection of extraordinary people and their writings and the wisdom that they still can impart to us today, um, which I believe is a, if you like, is a huge resource for us. We tend to think of ourselves as being in a kind of culture that is created out of immutable stone that can never, ever change. And of course, that's not true. Culture is created out of ideas, out of the history of ideas. And within our own history, we have these extraordinary ideas from extraordinary people who, who taught us not just about, about love, but about the value of work, about the value of relationships, about how those things fall into a confused politics, and about what happens when systems like that go wrong, either through natural catastrophe or through our own uh, making, through the, through the kinds of dysfunctionalities that I, that I point to, that I allude to in relation to capitalism. And, and so what they teach us, I think, is that we are 
uh, as a species, enormously resourceful, that we have a, a long history of ideas, that our psyche is incredibly complex, that its peak experiences, and, and they include love, are actually things that are available to all of us and in some sense are rights for all human beings and they should not be the terrain of the rich. They should not be the terrain of one gender or one race or one skin color. They actually are the foundation from which we build our social vision for ourselves into the future. And in the process of doing that, I think uh, their ideas are as relevant today as they've ever been. Tim, um... I'm not sure if I think this, but there'll be a lot of people watching this and say, well, yeah, love's really important, but there's nothing incompatible between love and capitalism. Very briefly, define what you mean by capitalism. I was sometimes a little uncertain. Is it a metaphor? Are you talking about an actual economic system? And, and why isn't capitalism, why aren't capitalism and love compatible? After all, many of the most successful capitalists have also loved and many people um, many people um, who, uh, who, who, who are poor struggle to love. So, so I, I don't really see why they're so incompatible. Uh, I, I, I'm just a little bit wary, Andrew, of that, of that comparison. I, I don't think capitalists have, have the priority over love. And I certainly don't think that, you know, those who aren't capitalists have the priority over love either. That's not what I'm saying. Actually, the connection between them is in another chapter and another character in the book, and it's the character of um, Ludwig Bolsten, Boltzmann, um, who's, and, and the chapter in the book on entropy and love sort of it explains in a way why it becomes important to protect human love within a finite planet, because we kind of live in a system that is limited in terms of its resources, um, actually governed by some quite strict physical laws, such as the second law of thermodynamics that Boltzmann was responsible for. And that law tells us that, that things like love are always achieved at a price. And that price is the increase in entropy, which all our material doings impose upon the world. And if we're not aware of that price, then we end up sacrificing love itself. We end up sacrificing our ability to achieve the highest things that human beings are capable of achieving. And that to some extent, I mean, you, you mentioned the pandemic as a source of um, this book and the thinking in this book, and there's no doubt that's been the case inevitably because of when I was writing it. But actually the concern with growth goes for me a lot further back and it goes back to that idea that there's something incompatible, something inconsistent, something uh, almost impossible to compute about endless growth on a finite planet. And, and I think it's that reality, that reality that endless growth on a finite planet is a kind of dream that forces us to confront the protection of those things most valuable to us, including love. Yeah, and uh, your book, Prosperity Without Growth, Foundations for the Economy of Tomorrow, uh, your previous book uh, was a, a, bit, a bestseller on many of the, the most influential books of, of, of the early 21st century. So in many ways, this new book, Post-Growth, Life After Capitalism, is, I mean, I don't know whether this is a fair way of putting it, Tim, uh, the, the, the second volume uh, of, of your work on this subject. The issue of love, and, I, and, and your pushback on me is fair on, on the love capitalist thing. It, it did remind me the issue of love has been uh, a persistent theme um, on our show. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of the American journalist Sarah Jaffe, the labor journalist, 
Uh, she had a really interesting book, Won't, uh, Work Won't Love You Back, uh, which came out uh, last year. And she cites the American, the Italian-American feminist Silvia Federici. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She's kind of a theorist, a, a feminist theorist of love. Uh, Federici writes, love is the great anti-individuality. It is the great communizer. Would you agree with Federici on that? Uh, yes, I, I think I would. I mean, it's 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 the ability for, to 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 extend ourselves beyond ourselves to those around us to feel empathy and to to care for them. And and actually, I I'm not sure where you were running on the question of work, but for me, um, work is actually also a part of that process. It's the process through which we engage in world building, through through which we engage in relationships with other people, through which we find our sense of meaning and purpose and participate in the life of society. So although it won't love you back, perhaps necessarily, and if you throw yourselves into unhealthy work, then that's also um, absolutely detrimental to health, that there is a sense in which capitalism has also undermined the world of work to, to lead us to think of it only as penance. When in fact, I believe it's the source of some of the greatest satisfactions that we are able to achieve. Right, and I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, English South Af Anglo South African anthropologist Jamie Saltzman. He he has a new book out on work in which he goes back to pre-industrial African tribes to rethink the nature of work. Now, your book is more philosophical than anthropological, but do you think, uh, in, in terms of memory, you also tried to remind us in the book about memory. Um, are there previous civilizations that we need to look back to to rethink the nature of work, pre-capitalist civilizations? Do we need to become, like Saltzman, more anthropological in our, in our uh, rethinking of work and of the economy? I'm, I'm a huge fan of anthropology. I think that idea of looking back at societies that predate our own is the only way to really keep ourselves free of the blindness which, which culture itself brings. We're all, to some extent, culturally blind to our own culture because we were inculcated in it, we were educated in it, we were brought up in it, we see it all around us. It looks like walls of stone, as I said before. It's not. It's, it's actually a temporary thing that changes from day to day through ideas that propagate themselves through our communication with each other. And by looking backwards, we see actually how different things can be. And we look, and those differences in the past are signposts into the future. They they tell us the roads through which we could travel, the places we could go, the visions that we could have. So so yes, and I and I do think that there's other ways of thinking about work, the ways that lie outside capitalism, the ways that aren't talked about in the human condition, and the ways that anthropologists see in earlier cultures. They are so crucial to us at the moment because we are living through and will for some time be living through if capitalism has its way a crisis of work yeah i was particularly taken with your section on Iran. we had david runciman on the show recently the cambridge university political philosopher he has a new series out on great thinkers and i thought his show he's also a successful popular podcaster his show on Iran was particularly good in the way in which he distinguishes manual work from labor or focuses on a rent you might say something about that about why a rent is so important in terms of i guess as a post-marxist or a perhaps a critic of marx 
of rethinking the very nature of labor? Yeah, I mean, Aaron's fascinating on this because she makes this distinction, which just seems perverse when you first see it, between labor and work. And labor for Arendt is the is the care of, of our daily lives. It's the care of each other. It's the care and nurturing of the means of subsistence. And it's and to some extent, when you read Arendt, you find that she's describing a world which is, you know, which is very close to drudgery. It's very close to the things that none of us want to do, to the cleaning, the cleaning up, the looking after of, of invalids, the place where actually we found ourselves in the in the middle of the pandemic the place which is a kind of subsistence world that absorbs us so totally sometimes that we actually become exhausted from it and and that's what Aaron calls labor but she doesn't denigrate it she doesn't say you know this is bad in fact in one place in her writing she says this is the only place we're really happy because we're not thinking about ourselves and we're not worried about ourselves too much and then once that work is done, we lift our eyes from the drudgery and we're faced instead with a very, very different challenge, the challenge of our own mortality, the fact that we're going to die and the anxiety sets in and we want something permanent and we want to be secure. And this is where Arendt's concept of work comes in. That's what she argues we're doing once we lift our eyes from the daily toil of everyday subsistence. We see something, a space that we want to fill with something permanent. We want to become a sense of our own future. We want to give our future a sense of permanence. And the only way we can do that in Aaron's view, is to is to build, to build artifacts, to build um, works of art, to build a sense of ourselves that will continue into the future, and and that's an, an equally important part of what we're doing through work is that sense of durability, and it too, and you'll just think I'm a broken record here, but it, it it's quite clearly the case it too is subject to the laws and dysfunctionalities of capitalism. Durability is an anathema to capitalism because if things last too long, that means you don't have the justification to go out building more of them, creating more novelty, throwing everything up in the air so you can make more stuff and sell it to more people to create profits uh, that will keep capitalism going. So in the same way that capitalism has, well, a slightly different way actually, but in, a, in the sense that capitalism has denigrated labor, it's, it's relegated those people to the lowest rungs of society, it's undermined the durability of work because it has to keep recreating in order to sustain itself. And both yeah. of those things are, are, are tragic when it comes to the undermining of our future. Yeah, and that is, of course, the Arendt of the human condition. Today, most people think of her as the, the Arendt of the origins of totalitarianism, but perhaps in terms of her real legacy, it's the, hu uh, the human condition that's so important. Uh, you begin the book, uh, Tim, with a couple of quotes, one from Maya Angelou, one from Shakespeare. Uh, both about um, history, and, and you mentioned that earlier. Uh, you say it's an invitation, post-growth, the book is an invitation to learn from history, an opportunity to free ourselves from the failed creed of the past. Are you promoting a creed yourself, or are you a post-creed thinker? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, Andrew. Um, I, I, I have to say, you know, as someone brought up in, in a creed, I have a deep suspicion of creeds. 
Um, but I do, and I think it's some sort of sort of emerged for me through the writing of the book and 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 in my in my in my engagements about the book afterwards. It occurs to me that there is something, you know, fundamental that I think has gone um, gone missing through capitalism, and it's a sense, a deeper sense of the human spirit, a different sense of human progress, an idea of ourselves that is richer and more fulfilling than we have yet seen uh, and i think in a way this is not something that i will see in my lifetime but it is something that i believe is possible which is a world in which everybody has the ability to to um to experience those most profound experiences that humans are capable of to push past the frontiers that we all to some extent place in front of our lives to go beyond the barriers to be more than human to some extent but at the same time to be and to become fully human and i i'm much as i am suspicious of creeds i suspect that is a kind of a creed well perhaps it's a kind of a creed um and you have a couple of people who in my view at least are the stars of the book people who are pushing to be, if not post-human, certainly uh, inspirations. Uh, you begin with the, these two characters who I don't think they've ever been put together, certainly at the beginning of a book, Greta Thunberg and uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Um, tell me a little bit about Thunberg, why you still see her as an inspiration and in the introduction to the book. Uh, you, 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 you write about Thunberg's performance uh, at the Davos event uh, in Switzerland in 2020, up in the mountains, where she she lectured the, the captains of capitalism about the future and their responsibility. Yeah, she, she did that there. She did that at the Climate Change Conference in New York. She does it everywhere. Um, and, and she is, or was when she started, you know, a 15-year-old schoolgirl um, it, with some challenging uh, personal issues in relation to her um, her her relationships to her her class, her society, and indeed to the world, and out of that, she created a following of young people. And I think it's really important to recognize the power that that comes with the fact that they were young people who want to change. Uh, that would make our society better, that would make our society more civilized, that would situate it within the confines of, of a finite planet, that would that would pay attention to the fact that our house is on fire and do something about it. And, and that's why that's why I see her as an inspiration. But I also see her to some extent, as I see all of these people as human beings struggling with their own particular circumstances, thinking through in the way I suppose that I wanted the book to think through, thinking through the challenges of where we are today and and speaking, allowing their voices to speak into that situation without the freedom, without the constraints to freedom that culture sometimes brings, seeing outside of ourselves with that ability of the, the prophet or the seer and, and in doing so guiding us towards a different place in the future. And I think, I think, Thunberg has definitely done that for a whole generation of people. And, and I also believe that, that, and that's why he's there, that Rob Kennedy. Right. Um, and, and that, that occurs to me. You, you, you connect Thunberg and Kennedy, uh, RFK, but actually you just explain the connection is they're both inspirations. And the book focuses on 
uh, Robert F. Kennedy's uh, speech just before he was assassinated at the University of Kansas in 1968, which seems to me at least to summarize your position, your position as a critic of capitalism. I'm just quoting a little bit from the, the speech. Uh, even And this is RFK uh, in Kansas in 68. Even if we act to erase material poverty, there is another greater task. It is to confront the poverty of satisfaction, purpose and dignity that afflicts all of us. Too much and for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community values in the mere accumul um, accumulation of material things. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. This was in 68. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of ca uh, carnage. So RFK was articulating uh, a, a philosophy uh, which I, I think uh, a prosperity without growth that, that, that you've spent your career writing about. Um, talk a little bit about RFK. There's something rather sad about all the stories you pick on. I mean, uh, Thunberg wasn't assassinated after Davos, but uh, Arendt died of a heart attack as she was re rethinking her notion of work. RFK was assassinated. Uh, why do these people keep on dying as they're saying the most important things? Well, everybody dies. I mean, in a way, that was a part of the point of them, and their stories include their deaths. There's a, there's a wonderful quote from a Greek philosopher called Solon, which is, you know, call no man happy until he's dead. And, and that's because for that view of thinking about people, it's the story of the life that creates the value of the person. And to some extent, yes, it was tragic. I mean, that the death of RFK and I, I talk about this a little bit in the book, is something that I kind of remember from my early childhood. And, and it was a tragic event, and it's particularly tragic that it happened to someone who had such extraordinary ideas. And you're always tempted to think, what would the world have been like if it hadn't happened? But my introduction to that, to that, um, to the character of, of RFK and to his legacy, if you like, was almost accidental. And, and I remember very clearly the day when that speech at the University of Kansas, the recording of that speech was discovered. And it spoke directly to the kind of work that we were doing, critiquing the GDP on the basis of its limitations and on the impact that, that growth has on the planet. And I kind of thought, and I began to think only later actually, where, where did that speech come from? Why was it there? What was this man? What was he trying to say? And discovering actually that he had you know, this deeper vision of what society should be like that went beyond that material ac accumulation of material things, that went beyond growth, that talked about purpose and dignity. And he was therefore a kind of, your sort of natural starting point, and to some extent a natural end point for the book because of um, the way in which that summer of 1968 turned out to be you know, both tragic in the sense that he he was assassinated at the end of it and Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated shortly before him, but also triumphant in the sense that on the day, on the night that Martin Luther King 
was assassinated. It was Kennedy who could go to the to the city in which that happened and talk to the people there, many of them black, with the honesty of a human being and, and calm the waters and present the idea that progress lies beyond individual life and talk about the sanctity of that life and even introduce poetry into that discussion and come out of it unscathed, even as cities around him in the US were burning that night because of the riots that ensued after King's assassination. So there, there was, you know, I'm not, I'm not painting him to be an absolute hero. And I know that there are those who, who will point to some of his deficiencies. We all have deficiencies. None of us is perfect. None of us is really a hero. And yet within us, that ability to see to, to see not just our own human condition, but the way in which we're situated on such a fragile planet and the importance of caring for others around us through that process and are prepared to articulate that vision, even actually sometimes if it means they lose their own life. That to me is tremendously inspiring and, and that's why the stories are there. Yeah, you, you talk about RFK as a, as a poet, and there's a certain degree of poetry about the book. I know some of the reviews have said you weren't concrete enough, but I, I, I'm not sure where, how concrete you can be in, in a book like this. And you're I mean, I, that's kind of that goes to the question of the relationship between this book and Prosperity Without Grace. Prosperity Without Grace is the concrete book. To some extent, Post-Growth is the prequel rather than the sequel, but it goes much, much deeper in its philosophy and and it paints more clearly i think the vision you know if you want the policies and the right. prescriptions then go to chapter 10 of prosperity without growth well as you say uh the book is a is is a kind of speculation it's it's a, it's a thought piece but let's end concretely because people will be thinking concretely and you do end kind of concretely you quote the chinese philosopher lao tzu uh you quote his words, that's enough, that's enough, enough is enough to know. And you suggest that we all need to learn what enough is. But some people were saying, well, how do we concretize that, Tim? You know, is, is enough one car or two cars or one iPhone or two iPhones or one house or two houses? Give me some concrete conclusions to this, sort of connecting uh, your your this new book, post growth life after capitalism, what with prosperity without growth. How can people know when enough is enough in their own lives? Uh, that's that's a you know that's both a, a kind of technical question at one level. You know how much can the earth afford, and we know that in many cases um, it cannot afford the lifestyles um, that we have become accustomed to aspiring to let us say it can't afford for all of us to be Elon Musk or 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 Jeff Bezos um and at the other and at the other level it is also a very very personal question that is about the journey one of my other thinkers in the book is Tish Nhat Han and and his arguments and it would go very much along the lines of Lao Tzu is that the question of enough is inside us and we find that question not by rushing endlessly forwards and trying to develop more and more which is what capitalism would have us do but actually trying to find that balance within ourselves there's a core idea in the book in a sense that that is the core failing of capitalism which the capitalism has the mantra of more and more is never a very good recipe for health health is 
about balance and finding that balance is an endless task. And it is to some extent the task of, of government. Jefferson once said, um, the care of human life and not its destruction is the first and only task of government. But it's also the task of us each individually. And, and finding that balance isn't something that I personally have answers to or pretend to have answers to. I think my 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 ask in pros, in post-growth and indeed in prosperity without growth is that we set out on that path as a society and we create that conversation that allows us to find our way into the future. Well, that conversation, post-growth, uh, you'll find that conversation in post-growth, Life After Capitalism, Tim Jackson's new book about imagining a world beyond capitalism or an alternative to capitalism. I think it's a must-read for, must for anyone, and I think that probably speaks to all of us who are questioning the nature of capitalism, the relentlessness of it in, in today's world. Uh, Tim, as I said earlier, you're in... Uh, Farnham in Surrey, uh, in the almost post-COVID age. In addition to your new book, what else should people be reading to make sense of the world? I, th I think there are there are so so many so many things, and I'm kind of torn in a way. I mean, Hannah Arendt is is quite difficult to read, but it's the human condition is still for me a classic. And then uh, you know this one, which which formed a part of my reading is Tishnat Han, The Art of Power. And I think power is such a, an important thing to bring into our conversations, what we think power is and, and what, what it is not. And then I also would just talk very briefly about, because the metaphor of post-growth is very much about health, this wonderful book by Peter Sterling, which places um, health in an evolutionary context and, and speaks to many of the themes in the book as well. Do you know? Uh, do you know him? I need to get. I him do. On. Yes, I do. I had some fantastic conversations with him as I was writing uh, post growth. He was he was very very helpful to me. Well, maybe you can uh, introduce me to him. Well, uh, Tim that. Jackson and Anna. Next time we do this, Tim, we'll have to do it on the beach. That would be lovely. We'll get a settee and we'll sit on the beach and have it filmed. A real honor, privilege. Keep well. Keep writing. Keep thinking. Keep throwing bombs. And we'll have you again on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew.